you take your Bibles and join me in Romans, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, I heard to my right somebody say yes, it's been a while since we've been in Romans, but we're back, and so let's pick it up in verse 21. And as you're turning there and you're ready to leave, I want to uh, welcome uh, our visitors, or if you haven't been here for a while, you are indeed our, our honored guest. We're glad you're here, and we want to make your visit um, uh, memorable as well as helpful. So if there's things we can do, uh, please see us after the service. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, We uphold the law. Father, thank you for preserving your word and thank you for the truth of the the magnificence of justification by faith alone. And Lord, may we understand more and more of what you've done for us through your son in the gospel. If there's someone here under the sound of my voice that has never embraced uh, Christ, that has never seen their need of a righteousness they cannot earn, may they find in him their sufficiency and walk out of here as a new creature. And so, Father, we thank you, and may you give us ears to hear, may our hearts be warmed by your truth, and may our wills be moved to obey, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I briefly mentioned, we arrived back in our long-anticipated journey through arguably what is Paul's magnum opus of of his, and that is Romans, the epistle uh, to the Romans. It's been called the Mount Everest of the New Testament and various other things. Uh, The section that we're in uh, today, verse 21, it is a transition section uh, from a lengthy one that began all the way back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, running through Romans 3 and verse 20. Uh, In that section, and this is my way of review to kind of bring us back, in that section, verses 1, or verse 18, chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's established two things. One, the wrath of God is upon every single person. Jew, Gentile alike, it doesn't matter. Every single human being born uh, is under the condemnation, the wrath of God. They have violated his law in conduct uh, as well as in thought. They have suppressed his truth as revealed in creation as well as revealed in his son. And as a result, God has brought everyone uh, wanting under his bar of justice. The second thing that Paul would do 
uh, in that section, verse 18 through 320, is that he shows that because of the guilt of man, because every single person is under the wrath of God, we need a righteousness that's found only in the gospel. Is that he has so brought us to wanting, so brought us in a state of misery, that the only possible way is something outside of us. And that would be the righteousness that we will see today of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has been so, so methodical, beginning in chapter 1 all the way through to where we are today. He has built one sound argument upon another sound argument upon another sound argument of bringing all humanity into the worst of conditions. And that it's separation from God that cannot be fixed humanly. It cannot be fixed by good works. It cannot be uh, fixed by attempting to obey the law of God. It cannot be fixed by religion. It cannot be fixed by any single thing that a person does. It It is completely out of the realm of a human experience and a human effort to achieve what is required. And that is to be in a right relationship with the living God. Well, we come now to this section, verse 21, and the good news, and the good news. But it's, but it's important that we don't, don't just forget what we went through because the good news is only good news if we know the bad news and if we embrace the bad news. And so, as William Hendrickson would say, and I think this is so good, he says, only one conclusion is possible, therefore. Man is doomed, doomed, doomed. His condition is one of thorough hopelessness and despair. And when you're there, the gospel becomes the greatest of good news. And thus we come to, as I mentioned, this section, uh, Romans 3, verse 21 through 26. Now there is a clear break in verse 27, which we will not get to today. We are going to look at verses 21 uh, through 26 and we are going to see what God has provided for us that is man's greatest need, and that is righteousness or a right relationship with the living God through the gospel. Now, if we look at verse 21, you'll see uh, these wonderful uh, words, but now, but now. Those are some of the most important two words we find in the scripture. It's like when Paul, when, when Paul would write into the Ephesians, he would say that you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were hopeless. You were children of wrath, but God. And so what you see then is not just uh, Paul giving a, um, a transition from the old to the new. He is giving us what is very important for the practical Christian life. Is But now is a transition from what he just said to what is occurring now. But think about your Christian life for a moment. What do you do when the devil whispers into your ears what a terrible Christian you are? What do you do when the lies of a conscience comes to you and says, you fail all the time, God can't love you anymore? What do you do when you have failed so much to obey God, to honor God, and sadly at times willfully, what do you do when those ways upon ways of condemnation and accusations come upon you? You cannot silence those by resolve to ignore them. They'll only intensify. The only possible way that we can defeat those, those lies of conscience and the devil is by the but now or the but God. And so what you see here clearly is that Paul is going to unfold the theological application of the atonement, which is very practical in Christian living. 
He would go as far as to give us three words. Look at verses 21 through uh, 25. There are three key words that you must learn to use in the spiritual warfare that you fight every, every day. And the first one is found in verse 21, righteousness. The second one is found in, uh, in verse uh, 24, and that is redemption. And the third one is found in verse 25, and that is propitiation. Now, we have a tendency to think, well, these are big theological truths, and I'm not a theologian. I don't need to. Yes, you do need to know these because this is theology that enables you to fight warfare. Because righteousness relates to our relationship with God and his law. Redemption relates to our being bought out of sin's captivity. And propitiation relates to us being freed from God's wrath. And so as we look at this righteousness that God gives us in Christ, understand that this is for practical living. When the devil whispers to me those lies, I can say, yes, but. But I have a righteousness that is not my own. You are absolutely right. I am a miserable Christian. I am a terrible Christian, but. I'm a new creature wearing a righteous robe that's not mine. And you can also say, yes, I am a horrible Christian. Yes, I have failed miserably, but I've been bought with a price, and I'm not yours anymore. I belong to the one who redeemed me, that he paid the price of his blood to buy me out of your captivity. And then you look at propitiation. And when the devil keeps attacking you and conscience keeps attacking you of how much that we fall short of the glory of God, you can certainly agree with him as Martin Luther would do. And then you could say, take your accusations to my propitiation. Take it to the cross to where all of those and everything else that I'm going to do has already been paid for. And that propitiation is once and forever. And so you're silenced once and forever because he did it once and forever. And so we see that there's a very practical aspect of this theology that Paul would say. I know we have a tendency to look at Romans as this, as I mentioned, the Mount Everest of theology. And it certainly is. But never lose sight. Theology, theology is not just to inform your head. Theology is to inform your head, to inflame your heart, to move your will. That's the purpose of theology. It's practical. It's for living. It's for, it's for the knowledge of, uh, to renew your mind that would inflame your heart with holy affection, as Edwards would say, that would move your will to the practical living of, of the Christian life in the context of a culture that needs to see salt and light that comes from living out redemption, righteousness, and propitiation. Well, let's begin looking at this. Verse 21. The first thing is the nature what is the nature of this gospel righteousness? That's what I've named this, the gospel righteousness. What is the nature of this gospel righteousness? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now before we, we look at the manifestation, what that means and the implications of that, we need to define the term or the, fa- uh, or the phrase righteousness of God. That's why every word is important in in the word of God. We know that every word is inspired. Every word is God-breathed. It's important that we just don't read through sections like this and and say, well, I got this. You got to look at every word and you need to define your terms. You need to understand uh, what Paul is saying. And this righteousness of God, it has two distinct ways or two distinct manifestations. 
Now this phrase appears seven times in the New Testament, five times in the book of Romans. And the first of the application of the righteousness of God comes out of who he is. It applies to who God is in his holiness and his perfect justice that leads to his unswerving commitment to execute the violation of his righteousness. It also is his unswerving commitment to display the glory and the honor of his person. And that through the execution of his righteousness uh, in the punitive nature of his punishment. The second way that this phrase is used and defined, and this is the one that Paul was referring to in 21 through 26, is it applies, uh, it applies to what God gives to the believing sinner. It applies to the imputation, and we'll use that word a few times, the imputations of Christ's righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God that we need. Obviously, you can't, you can't separate the two, but it's important that we see the righteousness of God as an attribute of His. Because if we don't see that, we'll never see the heinous nature of sin. We must see God for who He is and what the cross is. Cross, he, uh, the cross is where justice and mercy meet. And the reason why it's such is because of the righteousness of who God is. And the second one, which is so important to us, is God giving us what we cannot earn. If you're going to go to heaven and you're going to stand before a holy God, you have to have a robe of righteousness that you did not sow yourself. It has to be given to you. And we'll see that in a little bit. So, okay, the first, the first point we want to make about the nature of, of gospel righteousness is that it is initiated by God himself. It is initiated by God himself. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. To, make man, to manifest is to make known or to disclose, to come clear. And this happens throughout Romans in the early chapters. You don't need to turn to it. But in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, concerning his son, Paul writes, who was declared to be the son of God. Again, the initiation of God in declaring who his son is. In Romans 1.17, he uses the righteousness of God again. He said the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then Romans 3, verse 25 and 26, he said God put forward or made known. And then he would use the words implying a manifestation to show twice in these verses 25 and 26. The point I want to make and the point that's so important for us and that you know this, but I want to reemphasize this, is that everything about God revealing himself is just that. It is his self-revelation. From start to finish, it's always God taking the initiative. It's never us. You didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I, my life's a mess. I think I'm just going to try Christianity. And you didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I've read some pretty good stories about Jesus. I think I'm, I might give Jesus a chance. I've actually had someone say to me one time, you know, that I tried Jesus. I tried Jesus. What do you mean you tried Jesus? The point I want to get at, and it's one you have to remember always, is that there's not a single thing in your life that you initiated on your own to come to God. If he doesn't come to us, we don't know him. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, Paul, I mean, the writer to Hebrews, which may be Paul, he says that in the last days, God has spoken to us by his son. The incarnation is a revelation of who he is. And so Paul would write that God reveals or manifests or makes known to us what we need. And if he doesn't do that, we never get what we need. It it's also applies to individuals, as I mentioned. God comes to Adam. God comes to Noah. 
God comes to Moses. God comes to Samuel. God comes to David. God comes to Mary. God comes to the shepherds. God comes to Paul. And God comes to every single believer. Is it you don't come to him, you respond to him apprehending you. And that's the glorious truth of God's love, of his mercy, even of his righteousness. That he would come and he would bring the law to bear down upon our souls and show us that we are in need of a righteousness that we cannot earn. And he crushes us in order to heal us. He exposes us in order to redeem us. And so the first thing we see in verse 21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested in the nature of gospel righteousness. It is initiated by God. Secondly, it's witnessed. It's witnessed throughout all of Scripture. It's witnessed throughout of Scripture. Paul would go on and say that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now we know, and he's already said this in chapter 118 through 320, that there is no way that anyone can gain God's righteousness by the law. He's made that very clear to Jew and Gentile alike. The flesh cannot fulfill its requirements. We know that. But there is one who came that did. There is one who came that did fulfill the law. That never violated the law at all. That one would be our righteousness. The perfect Lord Jesus. And Paul would say that the the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. But it is manifested through Jesus' complete obedience to the law. You say, well, why, why is that important? It's important for this reason. We not only need Christ as a propitiation for the broken law that we did. And the pet and the debt, debt do that. We also need his active obedience to the law throughout his life. We are not free from the law of God. God holds us to that standard. The law is not abolished. Jesus said, I come to fulfill the law. So when you see Jesus walking upon the earth, you know what he's doing? He is fulfilling or fulfilling or, or perfecting the law. And so that when you receive him and believe upon him, two things occur. Number one, you receive his active obedience to the law on your account. And you also receive his passive obedience, as theologians would say, as he dies on the cross for the debt owed the broken law. And so Christ is, is the law has been manifested apart from the law in Christ as he fulfilled the law. But notice what also, that the, the scriptures bear witness of this righteousness. And what I want you to, to, to understand, which I know you do, but constantly tell yourself this. This righteousness of God that we're talking about, it's not a concept. It's a person. It's a person. You don't walk as a Christian with a concept. You don't walk with an ethic. You walk with a person. And this person is your righteousness. This person is the one that because of his active obedience in fulfilling the law that you must have and his passive obedience in dying for the broken law, he imputes those to you as a believing sinner so that you can stand before the devil, you can stand before your conscience, you can stand before God in complete acquittal because of this obedience of Christ to the law and to the the death that paid the death of the law. It's a person. But Paul would note that the scripture... He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, witness through all of Scripture. Paul states that the entirety of Scripture gives testimony to Jesus. Jesus himself would say that. What Paul does in this section here is he maintains the continuity of the Testaments. He maintains the continuity of the Testaments. 
Jesus says in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Remember the road to Emmaus. The disciples who were slow to learn. Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And he, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Paul would say the law and the prophets in Romans 3. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Friends, it's important that you understand from Genesis to Revelation... The theme of this book is the Lord Jesus. This is Jesus. This is God from beginning to end. It's not in the beginning, in the beginning man. It's in the beginning God. And it continues throughout the thread is that we are to see Jesus. I'm not saying uh, grab a, a, a verse out of Numbers and say, well, let me find Jesus in this verse. I'm not saying that. There's a lot of desert and trees in Numbers. What I'm saying is that this whole thing, this whole book that God has given us, I don't say a thing with levity, is that God has given us a book that reveals himself, the gospel righteousness, and it's a revelation of the person, and the person is Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said this one time, Do you know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, this is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I must keep on this track until I get to him. So must we, brethren. We must have Christ in all our discourses. Whatever else is in or not in them, there ought to be enough of the gospel in every sermon to save a soul. Every road leads to London, he would say, and every book of the Bible leads to Jesus. And Paul would say, this righteousness that you need, this righteousness that I've already told you, you don't have, it doesn't come from God giving you a thing. It comes from you embracing the person of the second member of the Trinity. It comes from you being in union with the Lord Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life to gain you and act, to gain you complete adherence to the law, and the one who died a sacrificial death so that you would inherit and be able to have imputed to you the due penalty paid for what he did so that you could stand before a holy God, irrespective of your conduct, knowing that you're righteous, knowing that you're perfect. So we've had then, then we, we see the, the nature of the gospel, of gospel righteousness. It's initiated by God, everything. So if, if you have an urge, urge to pray, and if you have a desire for Christ, and you yearn to be free from sin, not a single one of those spiritual impulses came from you. We, by nature, don't have that. It has to be given to us. This... this unfolding of desires for God comes from God himself. What a great God that he not only would make himself known, manifest the righteousness we need, but then he would create within us the hunger for that righteousness. Let's move on. We look at verse 22 through 25. The second thing that we note about man's greatest need and God's provision is the ground of gospel righteousness. The ground of gospel righteousness. The nature is initiated by God, is witnessed through scripture. The ground. The first one is this, God's provision in Christ as a propitiation. I've mentioned that word a few times. But I wonder in how many times, uh, in the, say in the last few months, in, in a fellowship group with other Christians, has the word propitiation been bounced around? Probably not. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. See, there's the initiation again. God puts forward what? A propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There is movements out there in our days of so-called Christian culture that wants to move, remove the blood, that wants to remove the blood atonement. You can't, this is not expiation, this is propitiation. Now there certainly is the, the aspect of expiation, but this is propitiation. It appears three other times in its variants in the, in the New Testament. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2, he is a propitiation for our sins. John 4.10, he is to be the son, the propitiation for our sins. Every one of the references is linked to our sins and blood. It has to be blood. It has to be an appeasing of wrath. That's what a propitiation means. It has to be a silencing of anger. And it has to be done by sacrifice of the shedding of blood. Because if there is no shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. God can't forgive us without propitiation. Or he, he, if there's no propitiation, we don't get forgiven. You can't do anything to propitiate yourself. Oh, you can... You can Take the wrath of God for all eternity. Martin Luther said that. He says, you can either let your sins be on your shoulder or you can let your sins be on Christ. And if you choose not to put your sins on Christ, then you are going to suffer torment of destruction and agony and pain throughout eternity in a horrible, horrible place called hell. And, and, and be careful. Hell is real. It's literal. It, it is painful, it is torment, and there is consciousness in this place. It's not just you cease to exist. It is a place of torment. And Jesus made, made it very clear that this is indeed a real place. And unless there's propitiation provided for us, that's where we go. And that's where we deserve to go. Unless God intervenes as he does in Romans 3 and throughout that letter we will read. But this is what I want you to see about propitiation. It is a means of appeasing wrath and anger. Is God angry with the wicked? Absolutely. The Bible says that he is angry with the wicked every day. Does God love us? Absolutely. Jim, how do you, how do you reconcile with those? I don't. Spurgeon says about that, he says you don't have to reckon, God doesn't see an issue of reconciling those two. Because friends don't have to be reconciled. But what I want you to see here with this in verse uh, 25, there's a link between redemption in verse 24 and propitiation. If we're going to be redeemed, then something has to happen so that we can be redeemed. And Jesus recognized his life was a substitutionary ransom. In Matthew 20, 28, he says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And that drives us back to the mercy seat of the Old Testament. The mercy seat was sprinkled with the blood of the sin sacrifice on the annual day of atonement. And this was the heart of the Old Covenant, as you know. What it symbolizes is the ark contained the law, and the mercy seat covered its curse whenever it was sprinkled by atoning blood. So we see the old give way to the new in this propitiatory death of Christ. 
And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he was made sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. And that is called the great exchange. This is what Paul was describing in verses 21 through 26, the great exchange. And here it is. Christ takes on our sins. Our sins are imputed to him. And then in turn, as we believe, his righteousness is imputed to us. And that is called the doctrine of justification. And it's one time. This is why you must live out of your position. You must live your Christian life out of the theological positions of redemption, of righteousness, and of propitiation. Because if you try to live your Christian life out of sanctification, I'm up one day, I'm down the next, you're going to be miserable. God does not look at you and base the relationship on how many times you read your Bible this week. He doesn't look at you and, and, and have a relationship with you based on how good of a Christian you are. Now, yes, those things matter with fellowship, but God bases your relationship with him through the work of Jesus Christ of propitiation, of redemption, and of imputed righteousness. That's why we can't stress enough that we must see everything through the lens of the gospel. You must live your life constantly through the lens of the gospel. It's not only your peace, it's not only your security, but it's your only answer for the warfare that you face every day within you. So we see the second ground of gospel righteousness in verse 22 and 25. The first one is this provision of Christ in propitiation. The second ground of gospel righteousness is that this provision in Christ is received by faith. Is received by faith. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25. To be received by faith. The whole of the Christian life that you know. Is from faith to faith. From start to finish it's all about faith. And Paul would say that in the bookends of the gospel. Uh, John, I mean, uh, Romans 1, 17, 18. He says the just shall live by faith. Now Romans 3, 20 and 20, 22 through 25. That you'll live by faith. It was the battle cry of the reformation. To live by faith. Hebrews 11.8 tells us without faith it is impossible to please him. So we talk a lot about faith, but what is faith? What is the faith that Paul would talk about? How would you define faith? Could you give me the elements of faith? There's three core elements of faith. These are, these are essential. These, these are what make up true faith. Faith is some vague, I believe. It's not that. It's not some spacey, I believe in God. That's not what it is. And people say, well, I, I, I'm, I have the faith. My question would be, well, what, what is that? Tell me what that looks like. And there's a lot of times it cannot be articulated well. It's not some, some like I said, some vague concept of, of God. Faith, is, faith has three, three core elements in it. And these would be verified by Paul, verified through Scripture throughout. This is the first one. Faith is based first on knowledge. It's not based on experience. It's not based on a feeling. It's based on knowledge. It's knowledge about a person. Romans 10, 14 says, And how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. So if there's any hope of having true, biblical, saving faith, it begins with knowledge. That's why it's important that you be under the book. And that you be in the book so that you can have knowledge. Knowledge. Peter would close out his second letter by saying, Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. 
But knowledge of Christ never saves a person. The knowledge of righteousness and of imputed righteousness that Paul talks about, you're not saved by just knowing that. You consider to say, well, I know that Jesus is, is my righteousness. I know that Jesus is my Savior. And I know you can add the word may, but your knowledge is only one part of the elements of faith. The second element is belief. Faith consists of knowledge, and belief is knowledge that is accepted as true. It's accepted as irrefutable fact, and that's because of its, of its origin. 1 John 5, 9 would say, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. The father says, I, here's the testimony. Here's the evidence that this is my son. You have to decide if the father's witness is true. That's what John is saying. And so you had this knowledge. You, you've, you've been exposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. And you see that. And then true faith will go to the second element, and that is, I believe that's true. I believe the evidence is, is, is overwhelming. I believe that's true. And you see, still yet, that's not salvation. In John chapter 2, Jesus said, many believed upon him, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. So there is a belief that doesn't save. And here's the third element of true faith, which is essential to the ground of gospel righteousness, because that's how you receive it. And that is trust. Trust. So evaluate your faith. Faith consists of knowledge. You believe the knowledge is true. And the evidence that you truly believe is you abandon yourself to it with trust. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This trust is a wholehearted mind, heart, and will commitment of reliance, I call it. Or a commitment of abandonment. It's like you're hanging on, you ever see those cartoons where you're hanging at this, at the, on, a, on a twig beside a cliff and you can't hold on much longer and you, have, you can't save yourself? Well, true trust would be in the one that would say, I can save you, let go of the limb. And you let go, knowing that in and of yourself you'll perish. This is what trust in Christ means. It's not, well, I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart I'm going to believe on him. The wrath of God is gone. Now I can do what I want to do. This trust is a radical commitment to the Lord Jesus. That he is Lord of all over all your life. And that this abandonment is validated by your daily trust in him. And your daily commitment to do his will. And so when you look at this, Paul says you receive it by faith. Don't, don't reduce your understanding of faith to just an acknowledgement. Faith is far more than acknowledgement. It is knowledge that leads to an affirmation that it's true, that leads to abandonment of trust that it's my truth, and that I cling to that. Well, let's move on. Look at verse 24. Here's the third ground of the, na- of the, of the nature of gospel provision. So far, so far, Paul has unfolded wonderfully the riches of the gospel. He showed us the nature of God's great gift of, of righteousness. He initiated it. It's witnessed throughout the scriptures so we can trust it. He showed us that the ground of this is the propitiation that he has made in his son. Christ is your substitute. And that means that you silence the devil by the fact he is your substitute. And that all of God's wrath, not part of it, was poured on him. The sins you're going to do today, the sins that you're going to do tomorrow, the propitiation has covered that as well. 
We also find in the, in, the, in the ground of gospel righteousness that God's provision in Christ is received by faith. And here's the staggering part. Look at verse 24. God's provision in Christ is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. Romans 3, 24, and are justified, made right, declared righteous before him as a gift of his grace. Now, we're going to talk more about this in Romans 5. Because in Romans 5, 16 and 17, Paul would mention three times, free gift, free gift, free gift. Friends, beloved, never, never, and ask God to help you because I have to have that same help. To lose the amazement of amazing grace. Never lose the sight of the gift. I call this bestowing grace. Never ever lose the all factor of God's amazing grace. Because you know what we deserve? Not amazing grace. And even as Christians, you know what you receive every day? The patience of God's amazing grace. 2 Corinthians 1.29 says this, So no one would boast in the presence of God. And that is because God the Father has put you in Christ Jesus, who is your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. And the more that we're in all of amazing grace, the more that the sweet fruit of humility will rise in our hearts and our lives. And the more that humility rises within us, we won't be easily offended. We won't be defensive. We won't lash out. We will understand that I deserve far more than all those things. And it's only when you are amazed by grace that you will grow in those fruit of the Spirit. And he would remind them in the deep theological truths of righteousness, of propitiation, and of redemption that all of it is a gift. And one thing about the gift of God, he never asked for it back. He'll never take it back. And so as he is the bestower of grace to us as a gift, would it not harmonize the church and our relationships if we bestowed grace, the gift of grace, in every relationship that we had? And that it becomes a model of God, the great benevolent giver of amazing grace. John Murray said this, the great Scottish theologian, quote, it is the glory of the gospel of Christ that it is all of free grace, end quote. So Paul's unpacking then, arguably the most detailed and wonderful picture of what the gospel does for us. It gives us a righteousness we cannot earn. It's all of grace initiated by God. It provides for us what we could not earn. He has revealed to us his love and amazing grace through the propitiation of his son, the substitutionary death of Christ. But then in verse 25 and 26, we find the display of gospel righteousness. And this really ties in to our mission, what we are to be on. But the first thing we see, verse 25 and 26, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show, that's a word of display, God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Just because he delayed, he says, passed over, looked back and delayed execution of, uh, of, of judgment upon sins of the past, in the old as well as even in the new. Just because he was slow doesn't mean it's not coming and doesn't mean it didn't come. 
we are seeing then two aspects of verse 25 and 26 or the display of gospel righteousness. We are seeing God's judicial act against sin on display. Do you know what the cross really is? The cross is God's righteousness on display in his hatred against sin. And you must see the cross, not only is Christ there dying for your sins, you must see Christ on the cross bearing the full wrath of what sin deserves. And if you need anything to keep you from playing with sin, or anything to keep you from toying with temptation, hang long at the cross and look up and see God's attitude towards sin. And in doing that, God's judicial act of punishment against sin is on display. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for a curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When you're going through suffering and you're going through affliction, one of the best things you can do, which will be the balm of your own soul, is to meditate long and, and, and read and deeply into the sufferings of Christ. Read that last week of his life when you're going through dark times. And read and see what he endures through Gethsemane. And then when you hear on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then you're going to understand how wicked and evil sin is. But until that, we won't. And if we don't see that, we won't be amazed by grace. And if we're not amazed by grace, then we'll never see the practical application of redemption, of righteousness, of propitiation. And then what happens, Christianity becomes a mere outward mechanical functional thing in our lives, not capturing the wonders of God's initiating amazing grace. And it really does begin and end at the cross. There we see the judicial act of God, the righteous God upon sin. And for the world that wants to downplay that and say, well, God is love, he's not a God of wrath, that is just simply heresy. Because God displays His wrath in His fullest measure. And here's the staggering part. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He drank that cup for you. And He drank that cup for me. And who am I as a redeemed, propitiated, imputed righteous person, am I to do anything or tolerate anything in my life that put Him on that tree? But there's another aspect of this display of gospel righteousness. Look at verse 26 and we'll close with this. God displays this gospel righteousness in the judicial act against sin on the cross. He also displays in this imputed righteousness His wisdom. His wisdom. Romans 3.26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is a significant dilemma. How can God maintain His righteous character unswerving his commitment to punish sin, but yet out of his love for us, justify us. How can he do this? How can he do this? Well, I can tell you one thing. Man would have never, ever thought of the gospel. It's beyond the scope of man. Man would have never come up with the wisdom of the gospel. Absolutely foreign. We would have never done that. So what has God done? He's revealed his, wit- his, his, his wisdom in the gospel. I mean, think about it for a minute. He comes in the form, he comes and becomes a man. He lives a perfect life fulfilling the law. He dies on the cross. You know all this. But don't let the gospel become, oh, you just know. And he's, oh, the gospel. 
Don't let it do that. Please, don't, I, don't, I can't have that in my own life. Don't let the gospel become so common in your knowledge and in your experience that you're not overwhelmed with the wisdom of God in giving us the gospel in the first place. I mean, who would have thought that God would take the form of his creature and then he would forever be in the form of his creature in a perfected uh, a, a humanity and that he would come in the cesspool of his creatures and that he would do all of these things for his creature and that he would be killed by his creature and that he would raise from the dead, he would go to prepare a place for his creature and that he would come back to take his creature who deserve hell to a place of eternal bliss. There's no way man's thinking that up. There's no way. But in the wisdom of God, he said, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. What is the mystery hidden? It's the gospel. And God makes it known. And he says, there's a righteousness that I'm going to provide for you so that you can know me and you can walk with me and you can love me for which I created you to do. And you're going to spend eternity with me. All you have to do is come by faith, which is knowledge, belief, trust. And in that, I will give you what you cannot earn. And Paul would say that the church, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the gospel, is to be made known. So friends, this, what we're reading, is for your encouragement. It's also for your commission is we are to go into all the world and say, as Hendrickson said, doomed, doomed, doomed. But there's hope. Because God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself to give us what we cannot earn. A righteousness that we have to have if we're going to know him. And if you'll simply come to Jesus Christ, let me tell you about him so you'll have the knowledge. And, and, and believe it's true because it is. And then cast yourself upon him because he's never, ever rejected a single person that comes to him. And if that's you today, if you're trying to be right with God by religion, stop. And if you're trying to earn God's favor by good works, stop. God has provided one way. The propitiation of his son. An imputed righteousness that once you have it and you're clothed in it, it never gets taken off. I would urge you, run to Christ Run to Christ with all your being and he will prove himself faithful to you and you will walk with him in a righteousness not of your own that will not only strengthen you in this life but it will ensure your eternal bliss in the next life. And Paul would show us the nature, you know, the substance and the display of, gospel, of the gospel righteousness. May God help us to see it and apply it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this truth of the gospel. What an amazing, what amazing wisdom that you would first even reveal yourself to us, which we did not deserve, and that you would provide your son to redeem us because of his propitiatory work. And then you would show us your holiness and your righteousness on the cross and how that you have allowed justice and mercy to kiss, as the psalmist would say. And that in turn, by believing upon the Lord Jesus, we can have this as our very own. I pray that for those in the sound of my voice who did not come to Christ, seeing that they are unrighteous, that they are sinners in a most precarious position. May they be granted faith. May they be granted repentance. And may you show them the glories of amazing grace. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, 
Help us to think on that word propitiation, substitute. And may it so thrill our hearts that you would provide a substitute. Lord, in all actuality, you have saved us from yourself. And we are grateful for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.